Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Michael Watkins. Michael is the Professor of Leadership and Organizational Change at IMDb in Switzerland and the founder of Genesis Advisors, an executive coaching firm focusing on accelerating transitions into new roles. He is a globally recognized transitions expert and the author of the best-selling book, The First 90 Days, Proven Strategies for Getting Up to Speed Faster and Smarter. He spent the last two decades working with leaders as they transition to new roles, build their teams, and transform their organizations. In 2023, Michael was inducted into the Thinkers 50 Management Hall of Fame. Michael has authored 15 books on leadership and negotiation and hundreds of articles for leading business journals. He has a new book, The Six Disciplines of Strategic Thinking, that we'll be discussing today. Before joining IMD in 2007, Michael was an associate professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Business School. Originally from Canada, he studied electrical engineering at the University of Waterloo and business and law at Western University before earning a PhD in decision sciences at Harvard University. Michael, welcome. Thanks so much for doing the show with me today. Great to be here. Yeah, I appreciate it. So let's start with your current mix of work. Are at IMD Business School in Switzerland, and you also have an executive coaching practice. So tell us a little bit, first of all, about the work and what you teach at, at IMD. Sure. So IMD specializes mostly in executive education. So we have a small MBA program, but overwhelmingly it's EMBAs, executive programs, both in-company and open. I teach one of IMD's big open enrollment executive programs called the Transition to Business Leadership Program. I'm the co-director of that program. And then I also teach a version of the First 90 Days program, virtual program, a few times a year through IMD. So I'm basically, I'm kind of 50% of my time at, at IMD these days. Yeah. And then you've got a coaching practice that you do as well. Yep. So after I uh, published the first 90 days originally, back in the early Paleozoic era, as I described it, right, 2003, there was a lot of interest in help getting people up to speed better and faster in roles. I was doing programs, I was doing coaching. And so we launched a, a company basically around the first 90 days. Today, we do a bit more than that. We do also team acceleration. We do some work transformation work. But the first 90 days and transition acceleration is still really a core part of what we do. And who are your typical clients? Just a range of corporations? and Yeah. So it's mostly global, sort of Fortune 500-ish type companies. We're US-based, but we're servicing globally. We've got a network of coaches. And so basically, it's mostly like that exactly, JR. It's an ongoing flow of people going into new roles. I mean, one of the beautiful things about transitions is there's always people going through them, right? So there's a, right. it's an evergreen kind of business. Yeah. 
And obviously, you do a lot of writing. Uh, you have a new book out. I think it's your 15th called The Six Disciplines of Strategic Thinking, Leading Your yep. Organization into the Future. So let's start with that. What was the spark of this particular book and what's its overall message? Well, just before that, so you say 15 books and that sounds very grand, right? I basically joked that I had one book that sold, but now I think it's close to a couple million copies and 14 books that sold like 50 copies each, right? So you got to keep these things in, <laughs> in perspective. I'm hoping for a better hit with this one. I mean, it wasn't quite that bad, but you know what I mean, right? It's always a bit of a challenge coming off writing something super successful. And one of the challenges I faced was right at the start, do I want to take on something yeah. New, or should I just keep on plowing the same furrow I've plowed for many years? The impetus was really working with my own clients personally, right? So I mostly coach senior execs taking new roles. My favorite group to work with are first-time CEOs, right? So you're, you know, you're stepping up into the CEO role for the first time. That's a really big leap, you know? Yes. And one of the things you need to do is craft and execute the strategy for your organization. And what I noticed was there were some people that were just astoundingly good at it, right? At the strategic thinking piece of it. And others that were, they were smart people, but there was something about the way they thought that wasn't quite as good as the folks that were just outstanding at it. And so that kind of got me interested in the subject. And then when I dug in, there's so much that's been written about strategy, as I know you know well, right? I don't think necessarily the world needs another book on strategy at this point, although I'm sure there's new things that are being developed. A lot less on strategic thinking, right? Lots on the strategy part, but not so much on the thinking part. Mm -hmm. And what is the set of mental capabilities that let senior leaders effectively recognize, prioritize, mobilize to deal with emerging challenges and opportunities? And that was the basic starting point for me is if you're going to be a senior leader in an organization these days, given the, the incredible turbulence that we're witnessing on so many levels, right? you've got to be leading your organization and doing those three things, right? Recognizing emerging challenges and opportunities early, prioritizing the right things, right? To focus on and then mobilizing your organization to really start to respond, right? So it's kind of a sense and respond kind of dynamic. And that was the way I kind of anchored my thinking about this, right? Around the, that recognized, prioritized, mobilized cycle. You've got some military experience. Uh, it took me back to a little bit to the old OODA loop stuff, right? Of, you know, moving through response cycles quickly that would came out of the, came right. out of the military. And from there, it was okay. So what are the set of mental capabilities that let leaders recognize, prioritize, mobilize? This, by the way, we can talk about. There's some things I include in strategic thinking that I think haven't traditionally been included in strategic thinking, like political savvy as a yeah. core dimension, right? That's not something you know, you'd see anywhere right. probably in discussions of strategic thinking, but it's super important. Yeah. But yeah, that was the original impetus was just working with these folks. And then like all these things, you've kind of got to get your head around, can you actually make a difference with people or not, <laughs> right? It's just, you, you have it or you don't, you know, or you've got it so much and that's the end of the story. Good luck and God bless. It's still interesting to look into why and what it is, but it's not all that helpful if you can't provide people with some guidance about how to get better at it. And I do believe people can get better at it. We can maybe talk about that, that later on. Yeah, well, I mean, we can come to that now and come back to some other things later. I mean, you make the, you ask the question in the book, are strategic thinkers born or made? You have a point of view, as I think you alluded to a second ago, that you can learn this skill, right? It isn't, some people are naturally better at it perhaps than others, but others can learn it. So, so I have this little simple, you know, representation of the way I think about it, right? Which is your strategic thinking ability is the sum of your endowment, which is the kind of the mental machinery that you kind of came with, 
your experience, that is your experience doing things that exercise those kinds of capabilities, the roles you played in the past, you know, the, the fact that you were encouraged to play chess as a child, I'm making this up, right? There's things, but there's things that actually exercise the capability, or sorry, that are experiences that do that. And then there's this component I call exercise, right? Which is literally like an exercise program you can engage yourself in that can help augment your strategic thinking capability. And for each of the elements of strategic thinking, I try to provide some ideas about how to do that, right? How to kind of put together a, a sort of an exercise program to help you, you do that and help you get better at it. It's like all great human capability, right? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Yes. <laughs> the relative percentages we can probably debate. I used to teach negotiation a lot and I always felt like I could get people 10 to 15% better at negotiating, right? And you kind of have that over a lifetime. I want a commission of that value creation. I think it's probably something in order, right? We're not going to take someone who has very little inherent capability and turn them into a great strategic thinker, but we could take someone who's pretty good and make them better, substantially better. And this is obviously important for companies. You mentioned a minute ago, just the increasing complexity of the world. How is increasing complexity making it more important? I don't know how you feel about the world as it currently is, right? But if there's been a time where we face more large challenges and are experiencing more turbulence in history, I kind of struggle to identify when that was, right? Maybe Second World War, maybe earlier times where there were these great global shifts, but you kind of take what's going on with climate change, right? And the pretty clearly accelerating issues we're facing there. I was reading an article a couple of days ago, a survey of AI researchers about how soon they think AI will do everything better than humans, and it's not that far off, right? Yeah. There's some people that think it's three years off there, right? Think about what that means, right? And right. So the acceleration of AI, the amount of political and global turbulence, right? The wars that we we haven't seen, major wars and in places like Europe or the Middle East for a long time, right? And they're very serious undertakings that's going on. Supply chain issues, so epidemics, we could go on and on and on, but there's an enormous amount of turbulence and very large challenges that business leaders face today. And I don't think strategic thinking is the only important capability to, to help navigate through that, but it's certainly an essential one, right? I mean, I would add for leaders, organizational agility and how you create organizations that are agile in the face of, of this, right? I would probably add personal resilience as a core capability. But if you've got someone who's a strong strategic thinker, can create an agile organization, and is personally pretty resilient, we're in the ballpark of what I think it takes to deal with what's going on today. Yeah, I mean, certainly there is a lot going on in the world geopolitically at the moment. Discussions around climate change and how quickly that will hit many other things as well. I think for me, the big thing that really feels like it continues to happen is the pace just gets faster and faster. When we were limited by the pace at which you could travel distances and the pace at which you communicate over distance, things happened more slowly. You had more time to reflect and adapt. You know, you talked earlier and you talk about this in the book, the recognize, prioritize, mobilize. I mean, that cycle has to happen a lot more quickly than it used to. And to me, that's what makes it harder. It's I just that how quickly you have to iterate those cycles. I think about, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about sort of school background. And I can remember an exercise. It was like a simulation group exercise that we went through in school. 
where you were managing a supply chain and yep. essentially you got badly whipsawed if you didn't manage it well by the end of the exercise because you know demand is moving competitive dynamics are moving and if you weren't really positioning yourself to be able to adjust to that yeah. this comes to some of the system thinking pieces that you talk exactly. about in the book and if you weren't adapting to that you were going to end up losing the game if you were able to figure out a way to adapt to those cycles more readily you would end up doing well in the game and that was the whole point and that process just it's happening so fast on. right now no, you're bang on, right? And I think it's not exactly an accident that recognize, prioritize, mobilize the initials are RPM, right? And so yeah. moving around that cycle faster, right, is in and of itself a dynamic source of competitive advantage, right? I yeah. think this is what you're saying. I 100% agree with you. So let's get to the six principles, pattern recognition, system analysis, mental agility, structured problem solving, visioning, and political savvy. We probably don't have time to go through all of them, yeah, yeah. but let's talk about a couple. And a sure. couple that I wanted to pick out, one was mental agility, because it's something which probably is a little bit vaguer as a concept. What does it really mean to possess mental agility? So again, maybe just back up really slightly, which is the first three of those I think of as the fundamentals for the recognize and prioritize part of the cycle. If you can recognize patterns, see you're an engineer by training, see the signal in the noise, understand what's really consequential. If you can think in systems terms so that you understand action, reaction, feedback loops, you know, tipping points, that all really helps you a lot with that recognize, you know, and prioritize elements, right? Right. You're bang on, which mental agility is a little bit of an amalgam of, of things, right? It's really two things that I kind of decided to, to squash together in part because they felt like they were connected and in part because I didn't feel like they kind of stood up to chapters necessarily on their own. One is what I call level shifting. And that's the ability to, as a CEO I've worked with many years with, calls cloud to ground thinking, right? The ability to look at things from different levels of analysis, right? See the big picture, you know, be up at 50,000 feet, dive down into the detail, pop back up to the key tactical issues. And it's not just being able to move between those levels. It's about being able to do so with intention, right? Being intentional about what altitude you're flying at, you know, is right. kind of the way I sort of think about it. And that also, by the way, connects to, you know, an exercise you can do, which is just as you're in a meeting, kind of going from what to the balcony, as it were, what's going on in the big picture here down into the detail. It's a really essential capability because you don't want leaders who are stuck in the clouds and you don't want leaders who can't see the big picture, right? It's that set of capabilities. And it is an example, I think, of one that you can build up your, your mental muscle to do it just by self-consciously exercising your and also asking yourself, back to the intentionality point, what's the altitude I need to be flying at now, right? And I'm sure, you know, you're really experienced business exec, and I'm sure you understand what that means, right? And you're, I'm sure you also understand what it means not to be flying at the right altitude, right? People are going, why is he Why is he stuck in the, in the mired in this detail, right? Or we're talking up in the clouds, we got to get concrete, right? And I'm sure you've seen examples of both those things. I had not heard the phrase cloud to ground thinking before reading the book. And I actually really like that. Somebody I worked with long ago at McKinsey called it porpoising, you know, just sort of the analogy yeah. of doing what a porpoise would do and whatever you call it. I like cloud to ground thinking better, I think. But just that ability to operate up here when you need to, to operate down here. For me, that has always been something that I've really valued that I work with because there are times, as you say, when you need people at 50,000 feet able to really see the big picture to understand that there are other forces at work maybe than the ones that they're most interested in. And then there's times where you just need people to like 
roll up their sleeves and get into the details. And right. being able to do both of those things is really important. You link in game playing as well. Yeah, so that's the other part, right, of the whole metal agility piece. And it's the second half of what I put together in that category. And it's I was originally trained in decision theory, game theory, negotiation theory in my PhD, right? So uh, I was an engineer, right, originally before that. I think engineering gives you the systems thinking, intuition, you know, yeah, decision theory game very much give you the... The game thinking, right, of action and reaction of I make a move, what's the counter move, what's the counter move, thinking forward a few moves, reasoning back to what you need to do today. And I think it is, again, a kind of mental flexibility or agility, right, that you need to be able to do that. Is it exactly the same capability that drives cloud to ground? Probably not. But there is something about your ability to shift between levels of thinking, look forward and reason backward that felt connected enough to me. They are to kind of package them in a, in a chapter. The game thinking piece, super important. Again, there's things you can do. If you grew up playing chess, I did not grow up playing chess, then it's tremendous training for that kind of thinking, right? right. And it marries itself super well to pattern recognition, right? Because chess grandmasters, they see a chess board in a way. I don't know if you're a chess player, but I'm not. A, if they see things at a board that we just don't see. They see patterns, they see possibility, they see opportunity, right? But they're also able to reason forward and think forward. Well, if I do this and this and this, right, things happen. I think it's, again, an essential capability for leaders to be able to anticipate competitive reaction, think about what's the best move given the likely competitive reactions we're going to make, we're going to face. That's, to me, a pretty important capability. Yeah, and it comes back to the RPM cycle, right? In a way, just being able to anticipate how people are going to play the game, whether it's chess or go or whatever the training might be that helps you get prepared for the business world. But there is definitely some value in that. You talked about political savvy more in the mobilize part of your the second three in your six. Yep. I had to admit that I, that one struck me as as a, an interesting choice to put into the six because it didn't feel like it was so much a a thinking skill, but it is an action skill and it's a really important one. Well, there's really super important strategic dimensions to it, right? I mean, before I was a leadership professor, I was a negotiation professor, right? I came off that experience doing decision theory, negotiation theory, game theory, and I taught negotiation at Harvard for many years, right? At the Kennedy School, then at the business school, before I sort of got into the first 90 days of leadership. And the school of thinking in negotiation I came out of was called strategic negotiation. And it basically embodied aspects of things like game and decision theory, right? A simple example would be what's the right order to talk to people to build momentum behind something you're trying to do? Do I talk to you first? Do I talk to your key advisor on something first? So that there's absolutely a strategic logic to political savvy, but there's other important parts like just your emotional intelligence, right? Your ability to intuit what people really want and are looking for, right. your persuasive abilities. I mean, it's not all strategic, but if you don't have that political savvy, then you better have someone who's pretty darn good at mobilizing or people that are really good at mobilizing, or you're not going to have the impact you want, right? And so it felt like it belonged, but it's not an obvious choice. I agree with you, right? It's a little, but that's kind of fun, right? Because it leads to interesting conversations about it. Yeah, and it made sense as I read through the chapter, you use a sort of disguised example of a consumer packaged goods company with a matrix structure, classic sort of classic battle that you find yourselves in, you know, yourself in if you've ever worked in a big company and you have the corporate functions want one thing, 
and the regional people want another thing. And, you know, this particular protagonist was very much caught in the middle and having to figure out how to navigate through that politically. And you can be a fantastic thinker. I mean, it, it makes sense. If you'd asked me to sort of write down skills beforehand, I probably wouldn't have listed that one. But it makes sense to include it because at the end of the day, you can be the best thinker out there. But if you can't get other people to come with you, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't. I agree, JR, 100%. And, and it also, it goes to that mobilize bucket of things you need to do, right? I mean, I think people, when they think strategic thinking, mostly think the recognized prioritized elements, like, am I good pattern recognition? Am I good at systems yeah. thinking? Do I have the mental agility? But those other three pieces, right? Structured problem solving, that's about leading your team through a process of making good, rigorous decisions, right? That's what that piece is all about. And a colleague at IMD and I actually have a, an article in the current issue of the HBR magazine that kind of is an extension of that about how do you spend time framing problems well before you solve them and, right. and kind of giving advice about how to do that. So that's structured problem solving. Visioning, I think, is pretty obviously part of the, the strategic thinking cluster that one thinks about. But even there, it's not just about creating a vision. It's about how do you enlist people in that vision? I use the term powerful simplification, right? How do you make it powerful and simple to pull people into that vision, right? How do you calibrate it that it's it's ambitious and inspiring, but it's got enough realism that people aren't going to go like, oh, JR is off in hyperspace again. So even with something like visioning, I think there is a necessary element of how you mobilize people around that vision that kind of is part of that back end of the book, basically. Yeah. And envisioning too, I mean, that sort of ability to project forward three, four, five years, maybe even more, and think about what you want to look like then and work backward from there. I mean, I find in my own experience, there are a lot of people 100%. who really focus on sort of the now forward, right? And they're thinking one or two moves out, but they're not necessarily thinking about where they want to be in the long term. And the ability to do that and to work backward from that and to lay out then a path forward from there. That's super important. It's an interesting discussion, right? Because I think that there's a whole school of thought about entrepreneurship that really revolves around that now forward thinking, which you talked yeah. about, right? It's like, what are our resources? What do we have to work with? It's the Airbnb oh, the story, lean, right? Yeah, the lean startup, all of those kinds of things, right? Well, you know, the classic example is Airbnb, right? A couple of guys in San Francisco, big conference in town, no available hotels, renting out air mattresses on their living room floor, and but having a website to do it. And that they took a resource and they, they moved. Did they start off with a vision for where they were going to go? Probably not, right? Hmm. But equally important to your point and where the real power comes, I think, is if you can also do that, look forward, work backward, thinking as well, right? And kind of mesh those things ideally together, I think. Yeah. You talk at the beginning of the book and you come back to it at the end of the book, this formula of endowment and experience and exercise to help somebody get better at doing this. You had some tips at the end of the book, particularly around how to get experience and the exercise, yep. because yep. it's hard sometimes to get yourself in a situation where you're actually pushed to develop your strategic thinking. So actually, another colleague and I had an article in HBR, a digital article about communicating like a strategic thinker, right? Just the act of talking like you're a strategic thinker turns out to be super important, right? And so what's the language you use? What do you focus on? How do you frame what's happening? Because I think the point you're making, JR, is exactly right. It's how do you prove you've got strategic thinking capability if you're not in a role that requires strategic thinking? It's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? Right. But one thing you can do is bring a strategic communication and articulation to everything you do 
early. And that's a way of demonstrating that you've got that sort of capability. So that's a little article that kind of extends that part of the thinking a bit more. And then exercise, right? I actually just wrote a, a short piece about using simple online games to work on your strategic thinking capability, right? So I play a few online games every single day. I start with Wordle, if you know it, right? Yesterday, I got it in three. Usually, I can get it in four. Super happy when I get it in three, right? I play another New York Times game called Connections, if you know it, that's about like 16 words, and you got to try and figure out what the relationships are. That exercises a different part of your mental muscle. I play a Washington Post game that's kind of a word game. It's like a a form of crossword, you know, Sudoku. I wrote this little article basically on here's a little daily regime you can use to kind of just keep your brain ticking over, right? I'm not a chess player. My kids started playing chess on chess.com and I play my youngest son usually badly, uh, I should say. But there's also a daily chess puzzle, right? I do it every day. You know, I get in there and it takes five, 10 minutes and sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. But inevitably, it gets me thinking about action or reaction, move and counter move, right? So one thing I think you can do is just start to play games. And the games themselves are fun. And it doesn't take that much time, right, to do it. But it exercises certain parts of your brain. And I think there's lots of evidence, too, that doing that actually has long-term brain benefits as well. Helps keep dementia at bay, other things like that. There's other exercises, you know, there's one I, in the visioning chapter, I talk a little bit on an exercise that a colleague of mine introduced to me many years ago called the architect's exercise. And the basic idea is anytime you enter a new space that you haven't been in before, you step back and you look at the space and you think, how could I make the functionality of this space better? What changes would I make in, in the space, the, the furnishings, the everything that would make it a more attractive space, a more usable space? And so, so much of this to me is just it is like exercise, right? It's like having that yeah. daily workout, right? It's, you keep your brain ticking over in some way so that when you need to use those capabilities, they're already kind of warmed up yeah, uh, to a degree. Yeah, good advice. I want to switch gears and talk about the first 90 days. As you said, at a few points during the conversation, it's it's the book for which you're best known. Did you have any idea when you wrote it that it would become such a seminal? No, nope. I describe myself as the accidental guru, right? Because I didn't ever kind of imagine that this would happen. And it happened at a funny time, too, because I was up for tenure at HBS and didn't get tenure. But almost simultaneously, the first 90 days was published and went on the, on the Business Week bestseller list, which was then something that people paid attention to for like 18 weeks or something crazy, right? So I, I was both kind of like, oh, you know, I disappointed I didn't get tenure gosh, what am I going to do with myself? And oh, you know, like, wow, this thing's taking off like a rocket, right? And that's when I founded the the leadership development, the executive coaching company originally. But no, 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 I I think I just happened to catch a wave. And timing, as you know, I'm sure very well, is there wasn't a much out there about how to take charge in a new leadership role, right? There was plenty about leadership, there was plenty about change, but that real incredible challenge of taking a new role, getting yourself up the the learning curve while simultaneously having an impact in the organization. Yeah, there wasn't much there. And, and also, I think what help, helped a lot was I'd published a previous book, a similar topic a few years earlier, and Johnson & Johnson had come to me to develop programs for their execs around that content. This is pre-first 90 days. So I spent a couple of years going around the world teaching programs to folks, you know, director of EP level folks taking the roles. I refined a lot of the ideas, right? 
just by virtue of interacting, you know, regularly with groups of people taking new roles, right? The STARS model, right? Startup turnaround, accelerated growth, realignment, sustaining success. The idea that the way you transition depends on what you're up against came out of that, those programs. And so the first 90 days was kind of almost a distillation of all of what I'd learned from doing that. And I think that made it super practical. It made it something people could grab and actually say, okay, this is going to help me make sense of this, right? Organize myself to be successful in these transitions. Yeah. You know, I think having read a lot of business books over the years, some are dry, some are very story oriented. The ones I think that tend to probably do the best are the ones that are some mix of, they make one sort of really intriguing point and they weave a story and examples around it, or they just are really practical. And to me, the first 90 days, 10 pieces, there's frameworks for each, there's practical guidance for each. I mean, often, you know, when you're coming into a new job or a new organization, particularly if you're a senior leader, all the eyes are on you. you you've got to accomplish a lot every day. Having a playbook and a framework for a playbook, which is exactly what that provides. For me, it certainly it hits the mark in terms of what a lot of transitioning leaders need because it, it just gives you useful guidance that you can sort of distill and digest and incorporate right away. Well, thank you. Again, I have my little jokes about this, right? And I say there are too many business books should be articles. Yeah. And there are too many articles that should be paragraphs, right? And so I think one characteristic of my writing is there tends to be a fair amount of substance to each chapter that I write. You know, like if I'm going to write a a chapter on accelerating your learning when taking a new role, that's going to be a fairly deep but useful. And then there's a chapter on how do you match your strategy situation. And then there's a chapter on building alliances, right? And I think it's something about the way I write and think. Maybe it's the engineering training person probably not partially, probably substantially. I think this book, that the book we were just talking about, The Six Disciplines, is similar, right? Each of those chapters, to a degree, stands on its own. They're connected, but they stand on their own as a kind of a, a reasonably deep but practical dive into something important. The other thing, I've always tried to write about things that I think have eternal leadership significance. Leadership transitions have been going on from the beginning of human experience, right? Right. People have negotiated from the beginning of time. People have had to think strategically forever, right? And I think it's particularly important, given how fast things are are happening, to try and find those things that remain kind of eternal leadership capabilities and focus attention on. Another I'm interested in these days is leadership presence. What does that mean exactly is something I'm thinking about these days. It's been 20 years, I think, since you first wrote the book. Have your own thoughts on successful transitions evolved? a lot over time? Absolutely, right? So first edition was 2003. Second edition was 2013. Sorry. The book was probably 40% new content for the second edition because a lot had changed that intervening 10 years. In the last 10 years, I'm writing the third edition now. So I'm thinking a lot about this. So much has changed, right? Remote work, right? No one had any notion of what it meant for remote work. The pace, your point earlier, right? The pace at which things are happening, right? I sometimes joke it's not the first 90 days anymore. It's the first 90 minutes, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's still irrelevant. The way we think about teams has changed. The whole rise of the importance of psychological safety in teams has changed. I've also, in the intervening 10 years, I've written dozens of articles about dimensions of this. For example, in the original book in the second edition, there was a chapter about securing early wins. That was mostly about how do you pick the right things to focus on to kind of drive your momentum. But there's a whole piece there about how do you arrive well in a new role, leverage your brand, your leadership brand, 
have the right presence coming in, build credibility early. That's going into the new version of the book because I hadn't really thought deeply enough about that piece, but it's super important. Using the 90-day cycles on an ongoing basis is another thing that's going to go into the new edition of the book. Like literally, how do you kind of manage your business in 90-day sprints? Like, what does that look like and mean? Some new ideas about how you establish direction, right? I'm very interested these days in leadership as mobilizing and focusing and sustaining energy in organizations. So that energetic idea is something that's going to be very much infused in the new edition. It wasn't in previous editions, right? So it's stuff like that. The big challenge, I think, by the way, is not overpacking it with a bunch of stuff. <laughs> yeah. When you've written dozens of articles about different pieces of this, you, the tendency is to kind of say, okay, let's, you know, let's, let's take all those pieces. And I guess if I have one big worry about it, it's that I make it too complicated. There's a balance. Yeah. There's clearly an important balance. No, there's absolutely a balance. I'm guilty of that sometimes of trying to pack too much into an argument and you have to kind of keep it distilled down. It comes back to some of the things you talk about in your current book about if the message is so complicated that people don't really understand it. This is, an, I think, in your visioning chapter. Yep. If you can't bring, bring people along with you in that vision in a way that's sort of clear and compelling and simplistic enough, then you'll lose them. And I think coming back to this Absolutely. is what makes a good business book. If the, if the book's too complicated, it just it, you lose people in it. It's interesting, you know, this idea of business presence, I think about, it's been about two and a half years since I, I joined the company that I'm with now. And I thought a lot about how did I want to come in? How did I want to represent myself? How did that build on the way that I had worked in the past? What did I want to do similarly? What did I want to do differently? That was definitely a consideration for me. And that's definitely different than 20 years ago, right? To your point about how the way you manage and lead teams is different. The concept of psychological safety, it, it's the command and control era of leadership to me is rapidly dying off. Probably still out there in some industries, but it's largely gone. And so it's much more complicated leadership environment than it used to be. So you have to think a lot about you, not just the task and the culture <laughs> and your boss and all <laughs> and of those how, And how you show up. And how yeah. you show up every day. Yeah. Yeah. And no, 100% agree. Right. And, and also, Gen Z and beyond the importance to those younger people of a sense of purpose and inspiration and in what they do. Right. And you've got to adapt to that as a leader today. Yeah. I worry a little bit about those generations given the challenges we're likely to face. But today it is absolutely important for many, many leaders that they have and are able to communicate a sense of purpose in what they're doing because that's a core part of what's engaging it. Those, those younger workers today. Very much so. You do a lot of coaching of people on transitions. Are there yep. pitfalls that you see them, traps that they often fall into that you would want to share in terms of what to avoid? Yeah. yeah. So, and interestingly, those haven't changed that much over time, right? It's still Marshall Goldsmith wrote a book. I'm sure you know what got you here won't get you there, right? Right. It, that's the biggest one, right? Thinking that you're going to be successful doing what you've done in the past, only more of it or better, right? And not recognizing you come to those moments when what got you here literally is not going to get you there. You need to step up with a different set of capabilities. You need to let go of some things that you're maybe really good at and love doing, right? So, and embrace things that maybe you don't feel quite so comfortable. So it's a variation on the comfort zone trap, but it's the number one thing I see. The other one, I I call it the action imperative, right? The sense that you have to take action, you have to do something, you have to prove 
to them, whoever they are, that they made the right choice in putting you in the role. And of course, there's you have to be realistic. You do need to move quickly often, right? And there are things that you can't put off happening, and it's dangerous to, to do so. But too often, I see people starting to make early calls or try to put their stamp on things or make decisions where they're not as informed as they need to be. And the pressure to do that is coming from inside them as much as anywhere. Yeah. So that notion of the action imperative, I think, is a, an important one. And then there's one that I think is related to the political savvy chapter in the matrix organizations you described, which is not building lateral relationships early enough, right? Like not reaching out to your peers, not reaching out to those key stakeholders, not investing early in building that network, right? And focusing too much in the vertical. Those would be some examples, Jared. Some of those things you mentioned, I mean, I know you wrote the book with more of a C-level senior leader in mind, but for anybody joining a new company, right, or taking on a new job, a lot of what's here applies. The stakes might not be quite as high because you're not perhaps in as big a role or senior role, but a lot of the same principles apply. And one of them certainly is coming in and just being too narrowly focused on, this is my team, this is my boss, managing vertically without thinking about the horizontal and the relationships that you build across the organization. If you fail to do that, I think when you come into a new organization, you're going to hinder yourself in the longer term. Absolutely. And for people coming in from outside organizations, right? Culture is a huge issue, right? And understanding that organizations really do have cultures and they are different. I mean, you alluded when we were talking earlier about the difference between military culture and business culture, right? That's an enormous difference. And people coming from the military into business can really struggle. So too can people coming out of a more command and controlish type organization into a much more lateral, agile organization, right? Where I see people really struggle there is the first time they make a major shift from one organization to the other with a very different culture, because they think this is just the way it is, right? This is the way organizations work. And then they discover, well, wait a minute. No. The example, I don't use the example anymore as much, but I've done a lot of work historically with Johnson & Johnson, great organization, very relationship-focused organization, mm -hmm. especially at the top. And you'd see someone coming in from, let's say, GE in the old days, right? And they'd come out from this very process-focused, much more command and control organization. And they'd kind of hit this this like a brick, right? Because it just, they'd start saying things in meetings and, you know, making what they thought were good points and people are kind of like, and often didn't last as a result. I mean, I, again, little jokes, I used to say that you should always hire people from GE on their second job after GE, right? Because someone else has sanded the corners off them a little bit, Yeah, you know? Yeah. It, but so culture is, is critical when you're onboarding. When you're being promoted, it's a different set of challenges, right? I mean, and the biggest ones often happen when you're promoted in place and you're leading former peers. That's a big one, right? Leading people that were formerly your peers, that's a very big challenge often, right? Because you've got to completely change the nature of the relationships. You may have people who thought they should have the job, right? You may have people who think you're there, think or honestly are good friends, but the relationship has to change. Part of what's fascinating for me is just how many different types of transitions they are and how each one has its own logic to it. Yeah. I mean, there's a book, The Making of a Manager, I think it's called by Julie Zhu. Mm -hmm. And she talks about the different ways that you can become a manager and how it matters. And again, I think she's thinking about first line managers, but whether it's first line, second line, C-level, whatever the case may be, the different ways in which you can move into those roles absolutely drives the transition. If you're Usually. all of a sudden leading your peers, if you're in the same organization, or if you're in a new organization and 
in some ways comes back a bit to this piece you want to include in your new edition around the business presence and the leadership presence. You have more degrees of freedom in a way when you move into a new organization than you do in an existing one. And that matters. It, It absolutely does, right? I mean, another example I use sometimes is when your boss is promoted and you're promoted and you're still reporting to the same person, right? But you're now leading the organization they used to lead. Yeah. Right? And there are some things you feel like really aren't working and you need to change, but you're telling the person who led the organization before yeah. you do that their baby isn't beautiful, right? It's endlessly fascinating, JR. I mean, even after many years I've spent doing this, transition is still fascinating because yeah. there's so much nuance to it. It's fun, right? It's coming back to this idea of playing games and learning and all of that. You, you sort of balance the sort of the day-to-day with what you're sort of learning yourself. 100%. I know you do a lot of writing and thinking about topics. What are the ones that are particularly top of mind for you right now outside of the content of your latest book and this new edition of the first 90 days? So I mentioned one already, which is leadership presence. I'm pretty interested in that these days and how do yeah. we think how do we think about what that really is, right? And how it really develops. So that one I'm thinking about, unsurprisingly, like everybody else on the planet, AI is pretty interesting to me these days. And so I actually just wrote an article about different levels of human capability that are going to be taken over by AI over time, right? And trying to think about how that's likely to evolve and how businesses can kind of plan against that very dynamic evolution, right? I mean, what I worry about there, and again, this is going to make complete sense to you, I think, right, is I see lots of organizations dealing with AI as if it's static, right? Okay, we've got ChatGPT, how do we, or ChatGPT4, how do we adapt to ChatGPT4? Important question. But equally important is what's ChatGPT5 going to look like and 6 and 7 and 10, right? How quickly are they going to happen? What capabilities are they going to have? What's that mean for how we need to think strategically about our organization, our workforce, right? And so there's a real danger in getting caught in a reactive planning mode as opposed to something that's more proactive and anticipatory. And so I just am working on a piece about that with a, actually with the CEO that I, I do a fair amount of work on. Yeah, I mean, AI, certainly in my industry, in any industry, I mean, you can't help but think about it. And you have to contemplate how you use it, how do you control it? how do you deal with the human consequences of it, right? I mean, I'm not sure where I fall on this idea of, is it going to take over the world or is it going to massively make life better for the humans in the world? I don't know. I mean, I I think we're going to have to steer it in a way that works for humanity. Otherwise, it's not a force for good. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I'm a little bit on the pessimistic side of Mm -hmm. this. I mean, I think I do lots of work with pretty high level scientific folks and absolutely, there's going to be incredible discovery that's going to flow from this. We've already seen some of incredible discovery in medicine and many, many fields, right? So that's the good news. The bad news is potentially pretty bad. I don't get caught up in the, is this thing going to kill us kind of modality, right? I guess it's possible, but it doesn't feel like that's highly likely at this point. What I more focus on is what's the impact on employment, society, yeah. political stability, you know? I'm going to read you something. Uh, there's a study that was released just a couple of days ago, big survey of AI researchers about their 
forecasted views of what's going to happen. 3,000 researchers, right? Forecast given 50% chance of AI systems achieving milestones by 2028, and it lists what those are. If science continues undisrupted, the chance of unaided machines outperforming humans in every possible task was estimated to be 10% by 2027 and wow. 50% by 2047. That's mind-blowing, JR, right? I mean, that's yeah. every human capability, every human capability, as yeah. early as three years from now, and maybe as late as 20 years from now. I hope it's 20 years, because if it's three, because so much of this is going to be driven off, how much time do we have to adapt, right? The yeah. biggest variable that's going to determine the level of disruption is how long is it going to take? How much time will we have to adapt, right? I mean, yeah. People call us a general purpose technology like electricity, right? Or, you know, like steam. I mean, those technologies took decades to have their impact fully felt in the end, right? And so there was a time for adaptation. People could move to new occupations. You could reskill people. If we're talking three years until every human capability, that's revolution. Yeah. I mean, we tend to believe that the capabilities are going to move much more quickly, perhaps, than the broad implementation of those capabilities. But this is going to be a constant threat that plays out. It's a bit like automation played out in the factory world starting, what, 40, 50 years ago, and the way that offshoring has played out in the business world. And this is just another one of those big trends that's that will play out perhaps over a few decades, but will be a constant headwind for people who aren't really prepared for it. And that's the thing Absolutely. I probably worry the most about is that just is this just yet another thing that puts pressure on the part of society that isn't able to adapt as well? And how does that end up driving political Absolutely. changes and everything else? No, 100%, right? And I, I, so I know we're almost out of time, but the other thing is there's a problem I call the nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide problem. That's an old song title, right? Right. So when human power was overtaken by mechanized power, people moved to factories and the dexterity, they assembled things and did things that machines couldn't. And then automation came along and did this. People moved into service occupations or intellectual occupations. There was a movement to new places where people could still do useful things. I don't see any place to go. I don't see any place for all those people that are going to be displaced by AI. I don't see anything for them to do. Right. Yeah. I mean, you saw what I just read to you. All human capability. Right. Able to be done better by unaided AI. Wow. You know, that's yeah. huge. Yeah. Well, we will see. It's a, probably a stark note on which to leave another one. I'm sorry. Hopefully, optimistic. Well, but, yeah, <laughs> no, no, no. But human ingenuity and, and adaptability, you don't want to bet against it. Right. You don't sure. want to bet against it. I mean, it could mean a lot of disruption and a lot of difficulty, but in the long run, I'm pretty confident the species will survive and, and get through it all. But yeah. there may be some bumpy road. Yeah. Well, we covered a lot of ground. We didn't cover anywhere close to my long list of questions, but perhaps a conversation for another day. Thank Absolutely. you. Appreciate you doing this. Oh, I enjoyed and, it a lot, Jared. Thank you. Yeah. And I hope this new book becomes the next first 90 days. If it does 25% as well, I'll, I'll be happy. Let's put it that way. You know, yeah. In my dreams, it does super well, but we'll see. But thanks so much, Jared. Yeah, absolutely. Have a good day, Michael. You too. Take care. I'd like to thank Michael for joining me today to discuss his work, his new book, The Six Disciplines of Strategic Thinking, and his most well-known book, The First 90 Days, as well as thoughts on leadership and a little bit on artificial intelligence, some of the other trends that are affecting the business world at the moment. If you'd like to make the most of your career, visit pathwise.io and become a member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day. 
Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.